Okay, Genesis House, why don't we uh, gather together? If you can turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Can you hear through the speakers okay? No. No? Okay. okay. Yeah, okay. Although now, is that better? Yep. Okay. I can turn it up more. Is it alright? It's okay. I think I maybe take the reverb off. Sure, ask the death guy. Ask the death guy. Churches he was overseeing to remember the truth found in God's Word. 
not only what was written by the Old Testament prophets, uh, but also handed down to them from the apostles, or through Jesus and then to the apostles. Now the reason, of course, as we've said every week, was to combat the heretical teaching of the false teachers that was spreading the lies through the churches uh, that Peter was overseeing. And uh, one of their lies was surrounding their beliefs about the second coming of Jesus and the pending judgment. They, they flat out denied that he was returning and that he was going to be a judge. Now Peter's response to this was, of course, to admonish the church to turn back to the Word of God, to remember its trustworthiness and reliability as the only source of truth regarding the certainty of the Lord's return. So as a result, last week we spent all of our time learning about why we can still trust the Scriptures today. Why can, you, why can you look at them, read them, and know that what is in here is actually truth? And that was the message. But Peter had another trick up his sleeve in helping his listeners, as well as us, uh, combat the heretical teaching of the false teachers regarding the, the Lord's return. And that was to remind them of God's past intervention in history. Remind them of what God did in the past. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So that's the creation account. And through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, which is the flood account in Noah's day. So these are two monumental events that Peter draws these listeners back to. The question is, why would this be a means of combating false teachers' teaching regarding the denial of his return? So why look back in history as a, as, as a, a battle tactic to, to say, yes, he is coming back, and uh, just ignore the false teachers' teaching on this? Well, the answer is actually found in verse 4. The answer is found in verse 4, and we pick it up here. He says, uh, where is the promise of his coming? This is what the false teachers are saying. For, this is a substantiation for what they're, why they're questioning this. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. The reason why they denied the second coming of Christ had to do with their uniformitarian view of the world. What do I mean by that? Well, that the nature of the world we live in is virtually unchanging. The world is governed by natural processes and phenomena which can't be altered or interrupted. So there's this constancy of existence that goes unchanged. So even if there was a God, this is what they might say to you, even if God exists, He would never seek to enter into creation, get involved in human affairs, and change the course of history. That's not how God works. And then you can see why now their view of the world deeply influenced their belief about the second coming. So if you sat under their teaching, if they were to come into this church and have coffee with you, they might say something like this to you at Tim Hortons. You know, God's not going to bring a devastating future judgment against the world. You know that, right? Because that's not how the world works. The world has gone on from the big day one till now, with, governed by natural laws. God doesn't come into this world and mess it up. There's a consistency. And therefore, there's never been such a judgment. So why are you then banking on the second coming and wasting your time anticipating the Lord's return? That's not going to happen. That's not the way the world and the universe function. It's easy to see now why Peter writes what he does in verse 5 and 6. Because he says, don't you remember the past? Don't you remember the past and what God did? And the focus is on how, on how he did these things. Listen to this. 
He escapes your notice, but by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed. And then he says, through which at the time the, 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 uh, was destroyed, being flooded with water. So the how is the focus here. How was this done? Quickly, rapidly, instantly. He stepped into history and changed it in an instant. As opposed to their view of the world, the uniformitarian world, which is everything functions slowly. Everything happens over long periods of time and gradually. And so this is the, this is the issue they're dealing with. And Peter's message to us is this, don't you forget that God has no problem getting involved in altering the course of history, especially when it comes to handing out justice. He did it before, and he'll do it again in the second coming. So it's a guarantee. But what I find the most interesting in this passage, and I learn something every week that surprises me, but uh, this is what surprised me most this week, was that uh, these truths about the world being created by the Word of God and the flood were not new truths to these false teachers. They knew these truths. They just willfully had ignored them. They willfully had rejected them. Where do I get this? In verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God the heavens existed long ago. That escapes their notice is a very interesting phrase in Greek. See, my Bible, the NASB, makes it sound like the false teachers had just had a case of the forgetfulness, or they were just a bit naive or uninformed and happened to miss something. But I'm going to suggest that you have translations in here that are different, that speak stronger to that. Who has an NIV in here? What does yours say, Roger? Which verse? Yeah, verse 5. But they deliberately forget. Perfect. When they deliberately forget. Okay? Who has, does anyone else have something like that? NLT, ESV. Okay, one of the translations says they deliberately overlook this fact. So when it says it escapes their notice there, that's a bit different than they deliberately forget or they deliberately overlook this fact. Now the Greek word is used either way in the, in the New Testament, but I'm convinced that context supports the second use. This was a deliberate, willful, willful overlooking of the fact that they knew what happened in history. Why would I say that? Remember chapter 2? We learned that these men once were believers. They were believers. They had made a commitment to Jesus Christ in the past. They would have been exposed to truth found in the Old Testament Scripture and aware of teaching the teachings of Jesus and apostles. So these men know what's contained in Scripture in the Old Testament. They just willfully rejected it. So they ought to have known these truths, but they rejected them. Now when I learned this, I saw how significant this was for application for us today. Today we have people in our society with very similar views to the false teachers in terms of the philosophy and experience, right? Or in terms of their views of uh, how the world functions and all that type of stuff. While I'm not prepared to say that we have identical people today because I didn't meet the false teachers, I'm trying to piece together what they're like from the second Peter's letter. Um, it's hard to figure out everything they believed. So while I'm not prepared to say we have an identical match today, we do have people like them in principle, in principle, especially in the West. People who hold to a uniformitarian view of the world. People who have grown up with exposure to Christianity and the scriptures, but willfully reject the Bible's claims. 
if I were to put a different word on uniformitarianism, I'd just call it naturalism. People that uphold the teaching of Darwinian, Darwinian evolution, right? There's no God that's going to step into this world and create it. There's no God that's going to judge us. There's no God that instantaneously brought the world into existence or flooded the world. God doesn't do that. He doesn't act like that in history. The world has come through a process of millions of years, slowly, gradually, and it's governed by natural laws. People who have grown up in the church, who have been once Christians, who have switched to that view, or are Christians in both of that view, right? That we can see that uh, there's, there's this very relevant today. Now, I don't have to try to convince you of the power and influence of this worldview in our culture. It's completely dominated our education system and is pervasively taught from elementary school to post-secondary institutions. Interestingly enough, what are the two areas are most antagonistic towards? The creation of the world and the global flood. The two issues that Peter identifies in here. So I thought I'd take the sermon in a different direction today. We've talked a lot about God's judgment in here because of the, the letter. We've talked about how he's going to do it, when he's going to do it. Because he's dealing with false teachers, he has to talk a lot about it. I'm not trying, you, don't, you don't need convincing that God's going to do that. So we want to look at something to, I want to discuss something else that would intrigue your interest and have a great conversation about and take the sermon in a different direction that speaks to something different, which would be the global flood. I'll leave the creation of the world alone and we'll just deal with the global flood. That's a very controversial issue and there are two common statements attacking its validity. One, A, it never happened, and B, it was only local and not global. So I'm going to tackle these two issues, and this is where I need wisdom because this is where the sermon began last night at 11.30. (laughs) (laughs) Everything else I had in my notes was supposed to support the evidence of the global flood, but actually didn't. So anyway, you can ask me in private how I did that, but whatever. Okay, so first, what about those who believe the global flood never occurred? It's interesting that in many ancient and modern civilizations, uh, they actually have flood legends and believe in the flood, a global flood. However, in the West, it's largely ruled out, and that any notion of a global flood is just ludicrous. So I find it interesting. The West, it's ludicrous, but nations and civilizations all over the world have global flood accounts. The Babylonians and their history and ancient culture have written in there about a global flood. The Chinese and their, and their culture have a written record of a global flood. The Mexicans have a written record of a global flood. The Aborigines from Australia have a written record. North American Indians, Scandinavians all have written records. But the Egyptians also have one as well. And I want to read you theirs because it's very interesting. You want to talk about Satan being a masquerade of an angel of light? You listen to this. This is the story of the Egyptians. One sentence. Their god, their god named Tem, was responsible for a primeval flood which covered the entire earth and destroyed all of mankind, except those who entered into Tem's boat. Go figure. That's an Egyptian history. All of these ancient modern civilizations who are intelligent civilizations, Egyptians, intelligent, Chinese, intelligent, you know, 
uh, well, they all are intelligent, you know, like, you know, they're not, and, and yet they all have a history of a global flood, but the West, who's supposedly this brilliant, intelligent nation, denies a global flood. Anyway, so that's just for, for, just for food for thought. So why? Well, again, it gets back to the uniformitarian view of the world. Everything we see in creation is best explained through evolutionary lenses. So we look at their geologic column, the wonders of the Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, the glaciers that exist, it's all explained through that lens. Now I find it interesting that Romans 1 says this, but God shows his anger from heavens against all sinful people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can already clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. So you can study creation, and you can learn that there must be a God in the universe that exists. But we have these two worldviews. God created, or the flood happened because God made it so and it was global. Or it didn't happen because the geologic record and the evolutionary lenses explain that the flood, that, that's the explanation for everything in the world and denies that the flood had ever happened. So I want to show you a two minute video about how to explain the geological record and how a universal global flood can, can uh, give evidence to the, the world that we see that would contradict evolution. Okay? And it has to do with Mount St. Helens. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens, located 95 miles south of Seattle, Washington, erupted. The eruption was triggered by an earthquake centered beneath the mountain that measured 5.1 on the Richter scale. The lateral blast swept out the north side of Mount St. Helens at 300 miles per hour with temperatures as high as 660 degrees Fahrenheit and the power of 24 megatons of thermal energy, it snapped 100-year-old trees like toothpicks and stripped them of their bark. Before the famous eruption at Mount St. Helens, scientists were mostly familiar with slow-acting examples of geologic change. But at Mount St. Helens, geologists watched the Earth's surface change quite rapidly. Icebergs were buried in hot avalanche material. They melted and formed badlands in days. Eruptions on May 18 and June 10 produced fine layers in hours. On June 10, mud flows cut zigzag canyons 100 feet deep in soft sand and mud, complete with perpendicular side canyons, canyons that are reminiscent of the geography of Grand Canyon only 40 times smaller and clearly produced within hours. Mud flows over the following decade cut hundreds of feet into solid rock in just days of cutting time. Fallen trees formed a log mat on the surface of Spirit Lake and dropped bark to the bottom of the lake, accumulating up to three feet of bark peat in just a couple years. Vertically floating logs sinking to the bottom of the lake resulted in buried trees in only a decade. Similar to the trees of Yellowstone's fossil forest, which are also buried in volcanic layers. 
Even though Mount St. Helens is a very small catastrophe compared to the flood or the major catastrophes immediately following the flood, it provides a better clue to what happened in those times than the slow geologic processes which are most commonly seen in the present. Okay, the point is this. Under catastrophic conditions, incredible geological things can happen, especially within rock layers and fossilization, even within hours and just days. That whole topography looked like that after a few hours and days of one volcano erupting. So when it comes down to evidence now, evidence, evidence that you can see, like she said, at the Grand Canyon in identical form, if the, if the global flood happened, which was a year-long process, from beginning to end, one year, and then 365 days on a global scale versus just a few hours at Mount St. Helens, you can see why the, the, the flood can explain the, the world's topography and the geologic column. So the issue is this. It's just a battle of worldviews. It's a battle of worldviews. It's not a lack of evidence. It's how we interpret the evidence. If you start from the, the worldview of the, of the Christian worldview, the scriptures of the global flood become the way you understand the evidence. If you come from the evolutionary background, you would understand it through that. So we all have the same evidence as how we interpret it. But I just wanted to show you that video to say it is possible to create huge rock formations, uh, trees sunk in volcanic ash in just hours and days of time. So it's not impossible for that to occur. I want to now speak to those who believe it's just local. You hear that argument once in a while. Just local, it wasn't global. Many who believe the flood was recorded in the Bible, that they believe it was just local, limit it to Mesopotamia, the area that Noah lived around at that time. They again believe this because of their Darwinian evolutionary background, and they believe that that's the source of their Earth's history. Now, I find it shocking when Christians believe and get duped into believing that it was just local because we have the scriptures as the authority and we have biblical evidence to support this. But I want to first show you the language in the Bible to show you that it wasn't, global, it wasn't local, it was global. Uh, Genesis 6:17. Behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life from under, he under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. All, everything. Genesis 7. I don't know why I did that. Having problems today. Genesis 7 says, The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. Verse 21. All flesh that moved on the earth, perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Verse 22, all that was on the land, all that was in the nostrils of, sorry, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. And verse 23, thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, and they were blotted from out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him on the ark. Pretty clear, the language from Genesis is global and not local. But more powerful, 
let's say someone wants to argue that. I'll say, okay, I'll, I'll concede. I won't push too hard. Here's the biggest scriptural evidence that it was global. What was the covenant that God made with mankind? What was he going to put in the sky? A rainbow. Okay. Here's the problem. If uh, the flood was just local, and he put a rainbow in the sky to say, I will never flood the earth ever again. How many floods have we had since then in our world? Tsunamis. Ever watch the news? Um, high River? You know, so I'm never going to flood the world again locally, anywhere, right? But I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky to tell you that I'm going to do that. And then all of a sudden, we have local floods? That's a real attack on God's character. Now he's a liar, untrustworthy, and uh, you, like, everything he says can't be counted as true. It has to be global. It has to be global. Because the rainbow covenant makes absolutely no sense if it's not. God has broken his covenant over and over and over. And I have some questions that are important that I think you should know about um, if you were to talk to someone about this. Or maybe you believe this. I mean, and so this is some questions I would have for you or for others. One, if the flood were just local, why build an ark? Why not have Noah just travel to an area where he knew the flood wouldn't happen? There's a flood going to be in High River, Andrew. Okay, thanks, God. I'm going to red here. Plus, he had 120 years notice. Gave him 120 years before the flood actually happened. Second thing, if local, why send animals on the ark to escape death? Other animals present in other geographical areas could continue their kind and, and re reproduce. So you can, can, you can destroy all my cattle, but it won't matter because I can go over here and just use their cattle to rebreed. Number three, if local, why were there birds sent on board? They could simply fly to another mountain range or some other haven. If local, how do we make sense of uh, 720 in Genesis, where waters were said to rise 15 cubits, which is 25 feet above the highest mountains? How could this be when water seeks its own level? The water couldn't rise to cover only local mountains while leaving others untouched. Right? If you have a, a mountain that's this high and a mountain this high, and you go and you make a local flood, and the water, um, the local flood's over here, it, it drowns this, this mountain here, it's not going to just stop and like recede for this mountain here. Water seeks its own level. It's going to cover everything equally. But the most important question is theological. If the flood were local, people who did not happen to be living in the vicinity wouldn't have been affected by it. They would have then escaped God's judgment on sin, which he said he would bring. If this is true, Jesus' words in Matthew 24 make no sense. When he likened the coming judgment of all men at his second coming to the judgment of all men in the days of Noah. A partial judgment in Noah's day means a partial judgment at the second coming. And that's not what the Bible teaches. So there's a theological issue if you believe it's local. Again, things to consider. So we're going to come to a close here, pretty quickly here. I just want to come back to Genesis 9 for one second. This was the covenant that he made 
Notice that God says this at the, begin, at the end of the, of, of the covenant with the rainbow. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. So God's promise is this. I am never going to destroy the, the world again with water. When I was the first became a Christian, I used to think it said he was never going to destroy the world, period. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm just going to never destroy the world with water again. He didn't say he wasn't going to destroy it with another means. Right? Peter highlights what's going to happen in the future. Verse 7. By this, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Remember, again, the false teacher's claims. The world, God's not going to intervene in any way. He's going to stay out of the world, and he's going to let it just govern by natural law. Here, Peter says, uh, don't forget... Uh, don't look to the future by remembering what happened in the past. He took the world out once with water. This time he's going to take it out by fire. And when you think about that, uh, that wouldn't be hard for him to do. That wouldn't be hard at all. Beneath the earth's uh, crust, uh, beneath the earth's crust is a liquid core between four to 6,000 degrees Celsius. All you do is open up the earth and let it all flow out. Secondly, um, lightning can come down from heaven, strike the earth and create fire. Volcanoes can erupt and all sorts of things. And in the flood, it's interesting, right? Because in the flood, the fountains of the deep opened up from, from deep in the ocean, brought level, water levels up, and the rains poured heaven down. So God sandwiched the world two ways of water. He did the exact same with fire. He opens up the earth's core, can come up this way, come down from fire, and do the exact same thing. It's not within his inability to do so. Again, just things to think about. But what Peter makes clear here is this. The world we live in is not finite. Oh, sorry, it is finite. It is finite. It's basically been stored on layaway for destruction. And God has destined it for a sudden and definite end. The question is, which side are we going to be on? But with this in mind, I want to leave you with this concluding comment. And I'm going to sound a little bit cheeky, but I don't mean to be. I'm just being flat out honest. I'm all for taking care of this world. I'm all for being a good steward of creation. I'm all for, like, you know, being uh, careful about how, you know, uh, like the way we, we act as human beings in relation to creation. But to be honest with you guys, it's not going to really matter what we do or don't do in terms of the Earth's longevity or survival and how we treat it. We have absolutely no influence over the length of its existence. God is the one who sustains it. He was the one who will bring it to a close. If He's got it already planned to reserve for fire, it doesn't matter how we treat it. Again, I'm not saying I'll be a good steward, but don't think that when all these initiatives to the governments and things are going to save the world and save the planet, it's absolute garbage. We're not going to. God's got a definite end. So what's my point? Go hunt elk, drill for oil, and don't worry if any of your plastic meant for the recycling bin ends up in the garbage. It's not going to make a difference to God's timing. You're not going to destroy the planet. That's God's job. I had no time to write lessons because, again, when you start a sermon around 30 at night, uh, you just have to get done what you're going to get done. So, uh, <laughs> uh, 
let's just have a good conversation and I'll be interested in your comments.